The Constitution of the State of North Carolina says that the Supreme Court will meet in Raleigh or such other places designated by the General Assembly uh, to honor the uh, restoration and reopening of this courthouse in 2004. The General Assembly, uh, by statute, says that the Supreme Court can now meet in Edenton. Uh, we are grateful for the times that we are here. It's been five years since we have held court here, so uh, it's a treat for us to be back. Uh, we certainly welcome this morning uh, students from uh, John A. Holmes High School as well as Lawrence Academy. So uh, welcome students and welcome all. The first case that we have this morning is Cedarbrook Residential Center uh, versus NC Department of Health and Human Services. And we will hear from the appellant. Good morning, may it please the court. I'm Adam Dorr with Robinson Bradshaw. I'm here with my colleague, Demi Bastian. We represent the defendant appellant, the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services Adult Care Licensure Section. I'd like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal. The plaintiffs are asking this court to hold that they can pursue a tort claim against the department by alleging that it was negligent in regulating Cedarbrook, an adult care home in Nebo, North Carolina. The legislature mandates that the department regulate adult care homes like Cedarbrook to protect their vulnerable residents. Elderly people, people with disabilities or mental illness, these are the residents of adult care homes. And the General Assembly has expressly expressed its intent to promote their interests and well-being. During inspections in 2015 and 2016, the department found that conditions at Cedarbrook were detrimental to the health and safety of its residents, and that Cedarbrook was failing to protect these people from abuse, neglect, and exploitation. The statements of deficiencies ran to hundreds of pages, including issues with roaches, a resident who intentionally started a fire in a residence hall bathroom, and failing to ensure that residents with diminished mental capacity were engaging in sex safely and with consent. The General Assembly requires the department to act when it finds violations of laws passed to protect residents, including the Adult Care Home Residence Bill of Rights. For example, Section 131D24 says the department shall impose an administrative penalty for violations. The department can also suspend admissions of new residents by statute, where the conditions of the adult care home are, quote, detrimental to the health or safety of the residents. What about in a situation like this where it appears that uh, Cedarbrook is arguing uh, that given the nature of the individuals who are there, their uh, various uh, challenged capacities, that uh, even the interviewing process, the information gathering, all of this uh, that uh, took place was one detrimental to the folks that were there uh, but secondly that uh, the uh, DHHS turned a blind eye to uh, to be willing to listen to the explanations uh, by Cedarbrook with regard to uh, the various um, 
things that were found. I mean, does the department have a responsibility to not just conduct uh, interviews with folks that may have diminished capacity, uh, but in fact to consult with the actual caregivers as well? So I'll take your question in two parts, Your Honor. Um, on the question of whether the inspection and the activities of the department were detrimental to the residents, um, Cedarbrook is not asserting claims in the name of the residents, and that's really a key distinction here between a tort claim brought on behalf of somebody who's a tort victim, as in the sense of a, regula you know, a regulatory failure, where there was somebody who was, you know, there wasn't an inspection done, and somebody was injured because the conditions at the facility were unsafe. So Cedarbrook isn't asserting that kind of claim here, nor could it. Um, on the question of whether the regulators owe a duty to the facility or whether they um, should not have turned a blind eye, as Cedarbrook alleges, of course we dispute that, to um, explanations or mitigating factors for the violations, um, of course the department should exercise its statutory authorities with as much diligence and care as possible, including communicating with um, the facility and the people who are there working in it. Um, but if there's a dispute that arises out of that process, the General Assembly has clearly said that those disputes go to the Office of Administrative Hearings to be heard by an administrative law judge. And specifically, in the statutes governing issues like suspensions of admissions, imposition of penalties, those statutes say that if the adult care home wishes to challenge, it should file a contested case. The contested case doesn't provide an opportunity for the adult care home to obtain money damages. What's and your position on the uh, dissent's view that OAH, the Office of Administrative Hearings, would have exclusive authority uh, to handle a matter such as this one as opposed to the Industrial Commission? That's entirely consistent with the Department's position here, Your Honor. Um, our position is that the administrative law, th th this case is particularly um, challenging and novel because it involves the intersection of administrative law and tort law. And what Cedarbrook is attempting to do is create a new form of administrative law tort where you can sue for negligence in the process of um, pursuing responsibilities under administrative law, like inspections, um, suspensions of emissions, things like that. Um, that's a totally separate thread from tort law, which is for tort victims. And you know, in the situation where there's a tort victim who's injured by the negligence of a state employee, that goes to the Industrial Commission. But our position is that when Cedarbrook filed its claim in the, in the Office of Administrative Hearings using the remedies expressly provided by statute, that that should have been the end of it. And that in this claim, where you're combining these tort systems and this administrative law systems, that it could lead to massive confusion and that really there's no situation in which somebody who's regulated by the state couldn't claim that their regulator was negligent. And, and I think the, if, if I understand your colleague's argument correctly, and they're going to have time to tell me that I didn't if I don't, uh, their argument seems to be that essentially tort is inevitably involved in 
this situation because essentially everybody owes a basic duty of care to everybody else uh, and that there's nothing that would accept a state agency like your client from the general duty to, to exercise due care. Uh, what response would you make to that argument, assuming that that's the one that they're that they're making? Because that I mean ultimately the first of your arguments is there's no duty. They say everybody's got a duty. Yes, they do. Um, and our position is that if you draw the duty with that level of generality, I think the concurring opinion in the Court of Appeals referred to it as a universal duty of care. It would apply to literally every action that every state employee takes in any context, including, you know, executing the laws passed by the General Assembly. If this claim is allowed to proceed, for example, take a claim in the Industrial Commission. If the Industrial Commission owes a duty to act reasonably or consider certain evidence or consult in particular ways in making its decision, if this claim is recognized, there's nothing to stop a disappointed utility company from saying that a rate-setting decision was negligent and file a claim in the Industrial Commission. Well, well let's, 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 let's protect the Industrial Commission there. I think they get workers' comp and the, my former body, the Utilities Commission, gets rates. But I mean, I, I take your point. I mean, your, your point, I gather, is that if when I was a Utilities Commissioner, I had negligently decided a rate case, that would be uh, subject to tort. You don't think it should have been the case. Absolutely, Your Honor. And I think it's quite clear. And, and, and just and, tell me oh, one more me. time why so that I'll follow you correctly. Okay. I, I think there are multiple reasons why the, um, the an employee acting for the state in this kind of context, and particularly when there's an express remedy to the Office of Administrative Hearings, um, would not be able to pursue a tort claim. The first is that the General Assembly clearly contemplated the remedies that would be available in a situation like this. For example, if there's a penalty and it's determined to be unreasonable on an adult care home, that's the statutory language, an unreasonable penalty, the remedy for that in the same statute is that the administrative law judge can adjust it. And I think that it would be a huge distortion of the General Assembly's plan to deal with these kinds of regulatory disputes if the party could then file a whole new action in the Industrial Commission after res resolution of the Office of Administrative Hearings case and say, well, that was unreasonable. So in addition to adjusting the penalty under the Tort Claims Act, we can also pursue a claim for money damages here in this separate forum. Well, you've candidly admitted, and I'm using your phrase, that there's an intersection between uh, a tort action here and a regulatory action here. Are you saying the OEH has exclusive control or is there any place for resolution of this nature uh, by the Industrial Commission? I'm saying when the General Assembly has provided an express remedy to the Office of Administrative Hearings that that is exclusive and that you, know, you might have, that's not to say that you couldn't conceivably have a tort action in some kind of situation where it's related to negligence, right? Like if Mr. Leonard, who's also a plaintiff in this action and owns Cedarbrook, came to the DHHS offices for a meeting about you know, his protest or to try and negotiate a resolution with regulators, 
and slipped and fell on the floor, you know, that might be a tort claim. Or if the department regulator drives out to Cedar Brook, forgets to set the parking brake on the car, and it rolls into a building, you know, maybe you could have a tort claim for property damage there. But that's an entirely separate context from the specific regulatory actions here where the department is carrying out specific statutory responsibilities to inspect and license these adult care homes. In that and respect, that's the situation where there's no duty. So In that, I'm sorry. Were you done? Could I ask one more? Please. Right, thank you. Are you agreeing then with the dissent's position that uh, since a private person does not have regulatory authority, that therefore, again, there's this ex exclusivity in terms of looking at the fact that the State Tort Claims Act would not be available because of the fact that private persons don't have regulatory authority? Or is there some other way to look at this aside from how the dissent pictures it? That's certainly an important aspect of this. There are a lot of other challenges with Cedar Brook's claim. But yes, the private person language in the Tort Claims Act does deal with this issue. And it speaks to the scope of the state's waiver of sovereign immunity when it passed the Tort Claims Act, which was limited to circumstances where a private person might be liable. And so what the General Assembly, and it's very clear from all the legislative history and all the prior case law, the General Assembly was trying to put tort victims injured by the negligence of a state employee in the same position as regular citizens. So if you were in a car accident, and you were injured or your car was wrecked, you can file a tort claim regardless of whether the person driving the car happened to be a state employee. And all of the early cases involve those kinds of situations, and that reflects the scope of the waiver. The General Assembly Let did not intend the scope of the waiver to extend to these kinds of actions. Now, I want to follow up on that. Of um, course. Is it your primary contention based on the factual scenario alleged here that the General Assembly in the Tort Claims Act just didn't provide for this kind of tort, or that the allegations here don't really allege a tort, or that the public duty doctrine applies um, to bar it, or all of the above? Yes, Your Honor. <laughs> I'll take option D, all of the above. Okay. Um, it, it does, um, all of those, um, all of those are reasons why this claim cannot proceed. And I think they all illustrate how trying to smush these two separate laws together, tort law and administrative law, creates all these complicated challenges and problems. I think that's also true in addition to the duty element of a negligence claim for the cause element. If the department is required to enforce statutes and impose penalties, did it cause damages? And then should we go into the Industrial Commission and have disputes about you know, was there contributory negligence if the facility was understaffed? I mean, these are the kinds of abstruse, complicated issues that you get into if you try and transport or layer tort law on top of administrative law, and it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense, and it would be dangerous to the whole regulatory structure of the state. Do you think it's necessary to talk about the public duty doctrine? I don't think it's necessary to talk about the public duty doctrine to resolve this case. I think that this case could be resolved simply on sovereign immunity by saying that you know, this court has repeatedly held that sovereign immunity isn't waived absent a plain, 
positive legislative direct, you know, direction to that effect. And that when you look at the statutes governing adult care homes and you look at the Tort Claims Act, there's no positive declaration that the state consented to be sued here. So I think you could resolve it on that ground. I think it could also be resolved on any of the elements of a negligence claim. Because without a negligence claim, it doesn't fall within the limited waiver in the Tort Claims Act. And I think, you know, we've talked about duty, we've talked about breach, cause also creates all kinds of problems and doesn't fit here, and then damages. Um, well, and if you get into duty, you get into public duty doctrine, possibly. I believe that public duty doctrine is an affirmative defense, and I think that that's one of the errors that the Court of Appeals here made, was that it said that um, because the public duty doctrine didn't apply, therefore there was a duty. And I think that's backwards in the analysis. I think the first question is, is there a tort claim? And then I think the second question, which is discrete, is, is there the affirmative defense of a public duty doctrine? Does it matter, does it matter for purposes of your overall argument that, the, um, that the, the plaintiffs here did pursue the administrative um, appeal of the regulatory action? Well, I think the way that that matters is that they filed the regulatory challenge in the Office of Administrative Hearings using the remedy provided, and then that case settled. And our position is that that's the function of administrative law. It's designed to resolve disputes like these. And it shouldn't then turn into a whole separate tort law action in a separate forum where you would litigate the same issues. I mean, there was discovery, depositions, all of that in the Office of Administrative Hearings. And it would be incredibly judicially inefficient to then turn around and litigate those exact same issues in the Industrial Commission. And our position is that that's in no way what the General Assembly intended. And, and Counselor, to follow up on the negligence claim issue, I believe it was your brief that cited the, albeit a Court of Appeals case, the Williams case uh, that uh, related to negligence interference with contract. I'm, what, what I'm struggling with is, is there uh, even a recognized tort in North Carolina. Could you comment on the Williams case and whether you see this as even a recognized tort? Uh, we don't see the claim that Cedarbrook is attempting to bring as a recognized claim. And I think in the Williams case, it was another case where a party was trying to challenge um, a state administrative type decision using a negligence claim, and the court rejected that I think using similar rationale to what we would suggest here, and there are other Court of Appeals cases that have taken the same approach in the past, and a lot of those cases have focused on the idea that, you know, tort is, tort is the law of accidents, and that when you have a regulator acting intentionally enforcing state law, that that doesn't fit that rubric. And so I think you're, you're correct that in the Williams case that there's an aspect, there's a question about whether the claim exists in the first place, but I think the court is also analyzing and grappling with the intersection of tort and regulatory law and rejecting that claim. And then a follow-up with respect to the particular facts in that case and, and as they compare to this case, uh, we have a, uh, it, uh, Williams is about a negligence interference with contract. Uh, how would we see that as an interference of contract here? How, how is it analogous other than just the more general prospect, or is it more specifically analogous? Um, 
I don't think it's analogous in the sense that Cedar Brook isn't attempting to bring um, a, you know, a negligent interference with contract case. I think if their claim was recognized, there wouldn't be anything to stop them from doing that. For example, some of the damages that they claim here are that Mr. Leonard planned to sell Cedar Brook and that he would have earned a profit on that sale and that because the department was engaged in regulatory action, the sale fell through. So if he had already executed a sale contract, I mean, I think that would have been very similar to the negligence claim that he's making here about the activities that the department took and how those affected his business. So I think that's this, this back and forth illustrates the, the central problem with these kinds of claims is that there's no real stopping point and there's no developed law to address them because tort has never really applied in these areas. And I think that's why the Court of Appeals decisions that it made prior to Cedar Brook, like Williams and like some older cases um, involving the state bar, they said this kind of intentional regulatory action by the state doesn't fit within a negligence claim because when the state acts, it does so with purpose. I mean, this is eight employees named in the affidavit. It wasn't an accident that they inspected Cedar Brook over a period of 10 months and issued these violations. Can I ask you along those lines on the question of whether there's a negligence claim here, then what we should do with the Nanny's Corner case? Because the dissent says, well, just limit that to the, to the statute of limitations issue. But as I understand it, the claim there was that the agency negligently relied on other, didn't do its own investigation when it, it found a violation and, and then um, it issued um, penalties or, or made uh, the daycare <laughs> do certain things. And, and, and the, as I read that opinion, apart from the question of what our denial of appeal, the appeal means, just on what the opinion itself says, it very clearly says that in those circumstances there's a claim in the Industrial Commission. Yes, Your Honor, it does say that. Um, and I think there are two ways that this court could deal with Nanny's Corner. One would be that if you look at the Nanny's Corner decision, that it very clearly says right before it goes into the statute of limitations analysis that the statute of limitations disposes of the claim but nonetheless, we proceed to briefly address this question. And so I think it's, it would be appropriate and consistent with that court's decision to confine that case and say that the remaining piece is dicta. Of course, the court could also overrule the Nanny's Corner decision to the extent that it says that there is a claim like the one that Cedar Brook is attempting to bring here. And I well, think now, there, that when there has to be either, you've got a constitutional tort, perhaps, and in order to avoid the constitutional tort, there had to be a finding uh, that there was a statutory remedy to prevent going to the constitutional tort. So, aren't we gonna if we if we say well we're gonna limit Nanny's cor uh, corner to uh, the idea that there was just a statute of limitations, don't we open up again the possibility of a constitutional tort? So the statute of limitations analysis in Nanny's Corner doesn't cross over entirely with the question of the constitutional claim. And it actually, if you read the section um, 
that addresses the statute of limitations, it says that the statute of limitations began to run when the claim was filed in the Office of Administrative Hearings because um, there was no money damages remedy. It doesn't say that there had to be a money damages remedy, and there is no reason that the court would have had to decide that question to deal with the statute of limitations issue. And as far as this broader question of whether holding that, um, that there's no negligence claim here could lead to constitutional claims, that's an argument that um, the appellee has raised in its brief in this court for the first time, but to the extent the court wishes to address it, um, our position would be that that's a separate case that Cedarbrook didn't attempt to bring a constitutional claim and that there are complicated questions surrounding those kinds of quorum claims and there's a whole body of precedent following the court's decision in quorum in 1992 that has evolved to address that. And so if there's going to be a sense that there needs to be some kind of remedy notwithstanding the General Assembly's statutes that it's passed without a money damages remedy, that our position is that that, that would be you know, a question for this court to address and develop in future cases, not here. I see that I'm almost out of time. Um, unless anyone has further questions, I'll reserve. Thank you. Thank you. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, I'm Joseph Ponzi with Brooks Pierce, counsel for the plaintiffs, Cedarbrook Residential Center, and Fred Leonard, and with me is Howard Williams. The Adult Care Licensure Section, ACLS, tries to paint Cedarbrook's claim as extraordinary. It does so by ignoring the facts of this case. The claim is really quite simple. The Adult Care Licensure Section negligently undertook inspections and summary licensure actions against Cedarbrook an adult care home in Western North Carolina, damaging Cedarbrook and its owner as a result. ACLS refuses to engage with the actual facts of this case, but the context for how we got here is important. The inspections themselves began in November of 2015, and the suspension of admissions was issued shortly thereafter. Now, the suspension of admissions prevents a facility from admitting new residents. Given the nature of these facilities, which do have a high resident turnover, Leaving that suspension in place over a period of time cuts off the revenue of the facility. It leaves it to die on the vine. Now, after each inspection, ACLS issued a statement of deficiencies, essentially their charging document. And in this case, those statements of deficiencies were hundreds of pages long. They were sprawling documents. We could not rebut or even understand what ACLS was alleging in those statements of deficiencies. So we filed suit in OAH and we had to build a record first to get a remedy. We did that through discovery and depositions and once we built that record, we sought a preliminary injunction. We obtained that preliminary injunction in July of 2016, but by that point, the damage was done. The census, the resident census had dropped by more than half. It's worth noting, we were making the same arguments to ACLS on day one of their inspections as we were 
as of the time of the morning of trial, we wrote them a 27-page letter in January of 2016 outlining the various mistakes and errors that they had made. And rather than reconsider their tactics, they doubled down with more inspections and more licensure actions and more statements of deficiencies. That is what caused Cedarbrook's harm. Now, these are unusually well-developed facts for a motion to dismiss, and they have been tested. They were tested by the administrative law judge on the preliminary injunction, and he found that we had shown a likelihood of success on the merits. They've been tested by the Industrial Commission, the finder of fact for this case, who determined that we had alleged a claim for negligence. Our facts support that finding. Now, the agency attempts to sweep away those facts and characterize everything as regulatory action, uh, but the details are worth understanding because it shows what kind of conduct and what kinds of consequences ACLS is actually trying to excuse. Well, let, let, let me help me understand the scope of the tort claim that you're asking us to, to recognize. Uh, hypothetical, I'm going to give you a couple of hypotheticals and just talk to me a bit about how your claim applies in these set of circumstances. A person is injured at work, uh, files a claim with the Industrial Commission seeking workers' compensation benefits. Again, hypothetically, the Commission goes through the proceedings, starts or starts the proceedings, and then just makes an off-the-wall conclusion, either that no benefits were payable or that benefits were payable. And it's just a totally unsupported uh, decision one way or the other. Is whoever is harmed by that decision, either the claimant or the uh, carrier or the employer, if they're self-insured, entitled to bring a tort action under that set of circumstances? No, I don't think so, Your Honor, because they have their own remedy through the appellate system that is set up from the Industrial Commission to the well, how, how is that not true here, too? You, I mean, my understanding is, and it's a big record, and I may have missed something, and so please tell me if I did, but my understanding is that you initiated the, 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 the OAH process was initiated, uh, got to the point of actually having a contested case hearing, and then there was a settlement. Let's say hypothetically that instead of settling, the parties had tried the case out in front of the administrative law judge, and the administrative law judge reached a decision one way or the other as to whether what the agency did was within the scope of its lawful authority. At that point, assuming that they found that the agency did act lawfully, your client would have had a right of appeal at that point, right? Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, Your client would have had a right of appeal at that point. That's correct. So how is that any different than the uh, much simpler workers' compensation hypothetical that I mentioned to you a minute ago? Because our remedy in, the, in either case is established through the appeal process that is provided for by law. In but you, but you, you, instead of settling, you could have appealed well, in or gone to trial and appealed. And on the morning of trial here, the agency withdrew all of the allegations. And I guess, and, and that was something I was going to ask you about anyway. Your brief says that several times. If Mr. Doerr's brief addressed it, I didn't see it. Was that with, it's been a long time since I did anything in the OAH as, as, as an attorney. Was the withdrawal of those allegations part of the settlement, or was that something else? 
No, it was part of the settlement that resolved the contested case. Right. Yes, so, so in essence, as part of the, 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 the withdrawal of the findings that you've referred to in your brief several times was part of the settlement that you entered in, your client entered into with the, the agency. Yes, that's exactly right. It was part of the settlement. I'm, I'm having some difficulty understanding why the appeal is sufficient in the workers' comp hypothetical that I gave you, but it's not in this set of circumstances. Help me understand why there's a distinction that I'm not picking up on so far. It, it's because of, it, it's, it goes to the, the availability of relief. In this case... Let me interrupt you to make sure I understand you. Is therefore, in theory, the comp claimant could either, if we're talking the comp claimant, the comp claimant would ultimately get benefits as the result of an appeal or the company would be precluded from making a payment, whereas there's no similar remedy available here. That's exactly so right. So is your argument, in essence, that this tort claim exists any time that a regulated entity winds up being financially worse off as the result of a negligent regulatory decision? No, our argument is that when a, an agency takes an action where OAH does not provide adequate relief, and this is not dissimilar from the exhaustion and, of and, this case. And in your view, at least adequate relief would have to include a some sort of financial compensation to the regulated entity? Uh, in this case, certainly, given the summary nature of the licensure actions that imposed severe damages against the facility and Mr. Leonard, before any, any uh, relief could be had. So it's important to, to keep in mind that these were summary actions. The damage was done before Cedarbrook had any uh, chance at relief. Well, let me, let me give you a different hypothetical mm -hmm. then and see, see if this works. When I, my knowledge of utility law is a little bit less rusty than it is of uh, workers' compensation law, but hypothetically a utility company applies to the commission for a general rate increase. The commission uh, errs in favor of the consumer interest and against the company. Uh, I'm not sure whether there, the court has ever decided that a company that is harmed by a commission decision that doesn't set the rates high enough is entitled to a surcharge. I don't know that that issue has ever been decided. Hypothetically, assuming that it isn't, so that the utilities' rates were set too low and even on appeal they might get relief prospectively. They would have been, a, possibly would have been a period of time when they couldn't come back and get a surcharge. Would that utility be able to bring a uh, tort claim against an individual member of the commission or the commission under the Tort Claims Act? Well, certainly not against an individual member okay, of the commission. That, I, I realized as soon as I said that 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 was not inconsistent with the Tort Claims Act, but it was too late to back up your right <laughs> about that. But the Tort Claims Act does impose a duty of care to, to proceed with reasonable care again, to state agencies acting within the scope of their employment and authority. Now, it is unlikely as a factual matter, but, hypothetically. But hypothetically, the answer to my question, as you see it, is yes, that, they, well, that such a tort claim would exist against the commission. No, I, I think the relief there is through the appellate process provided but the, for but, by but law. the appellate process in that instance, hypothetically, would not allow a surcharge picking up. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't. I think this is an open question, so I'm assuming a legal answer that I don't know has been given yet. But assuming that 
the utility is not entitled to go back and get additional money from the customers as a result of the fact that it was not given sufficiently high rates so that it is without, it didn't get the money and it doesn't have any way to go back and get it, assuming all of that to be true when it may not be. Uh, is, is a tort claim available under that set of circumstances? Your Honor, the Tort Claims Act imposes a duty of reasonable care on, in, on agencies acting within the scope of their employment and authority. If uh, uh, the Industrial Commission in that, in that case failed to act with reasonable care and the claimant could prove that, potentially there would be an action under the okay. Tort Claims Act. Let me shift um, gears for just a second here about mm -hmm. that, that particular thing you were just talking about, what the Tort Claims Act says about the duty of um, agents of the state. Um, it also says that um, while acting within the scope of their office, employment, service agency, or authority, and here's the key language, under circumstances where the state of North Carolina, if a private person, would be liable to the claimant. And as I understand the state's argument, it is that this a private person doesn't have the authority to regulate, and so therefore that clearly doesn't cover this type of situation. Otherwise, you would open the door to a flood of all kinds of tort claims against a ton of different regulatory agencies, like you know the health department imposing downgrades on restaurants and publishing it in the newspaper. Can they all sue if they think the inspection was negligently done? Um, but the, the but the point being that. The, the Tort Claims Act is limited to actions by the state um, being subject to tort action if a private person would be liable in those circumstances. How could a private person be liable for regulatory action? And, and the courts have, have spoken about that language. It doesn't limit uh, tort claims to instances where a private person would have the authority to take the action that the state took. What it does is it, wa it is the waiver of sovereign immunity and it incorporates the law of negligence. So it allows for the defenses that any private person would have, like contributory negligence or last clear chance. Uh, but what, there what are- What specific authorities are you talking about? You said that the courts have said that this is allowed. Uh, um, Patrick in particular speaks to the waiver, the, the private person language being the waiver of sovereign immunity. Um, and uh, there are numerous instances of uh, Tort Claims Act cases involving the exercise of regulatory authority that private persons cannot take. This court's uh, uh, affirmed per curiam the decision in Watts v. Diener, which was a claim against Diener for negligent inspection and issuance of a septic permit. A private person does not have the authority to issue a septic permit. Uh, and the, the Court of Appeals found that that was a cognizable claim. This court affirmed it per curiam the suggestion, of course, being that it is unremarkable that regulatory action can be subject to a Tort Claims Act and that the agencies undertaking that action owe a duty of care. Another example is multiple claimants v. DHHS. Again, this court's opinion, which involved the negligent inspection of fire safety devices in a county jail. There, too, the court recognized that claim. It was a cognizable tort under the Tort Claims Act. And then- Do, do any of the cases that you're relying on um, involve situations where the damage is economic to the business as opposed to the, the risk of possible physical damage to individuals or property? Um, Nanny's Corner was, uh, of course, a, a case that related to economic damages. 
and um, I'm sorry the name escapes me, but uh, damages are part of the Tort Claims Act. It is um, part claimants under the Tort Claims Act have the same right to direct and consequential damages as any claimant um, asserting a claim for negligence. Well, do you do you disagree with the um, your opponent's uh, argument that in Nanny's Corner, the Court of Appeals uh, majority says? We're disposing of this case on the statute of limitations, and then goes on to say, "But anyway, you could have covered this; could have been a remedy, been remedied under the state court claims act, and that's dicta." I do disagree with that, and so did the majority in the court of appeals in this case. Um, that was part of the holding. They had to identify; they had to, to reach the decision that there had been a, a tort claims act claim available in order to dispose of um, the case otherwise. So it was part of the holding of Nanny's Corner, and the Court of Appeals got it exactly right. How does your litany of cases um, include the Ray case, Ray versus NCDOT, wherein there was the recognition of uh, even a limited sovereign immunity uh, for a state agency, particularly uh, an employee or an agent within that state agency, uh, and yet still it was deemed that uh, it, that could only occur if a private person had the opportunity uh, to be sued. Well, Ray dealt with the public duty doctrine and the scope of the, the applicability of the public duty doctrine, and it was very clear on that point that the public duty doctrine is much more narrow than this court had previously held it to be under the uh, 2008 amendment to the Tort Claims Act. Uh, and that was that was the hook of the private duty doctrine, of, of the public duty doctrine, I'm sorry. The theory behind it was that we didn't want to hold the state liable for, um, for uh, because of its status as a government. So where a private person didn't have authority uh, to undertake that action, uh, you can't hold the government liable because then it's liable for its status as a governmental actor rather than for its conduct. Here, we're not asking the court to hold uh, uh, ACLS liable for its status as a governmental actor, but rather for its conduct in undertaking negligent inspections and license, summary licensure actions against Cedar Brook. So there is some reliance on the public duty doctrine, as I understand it, or are you detaching yourself from that to some extent? Well, the public duty doctrine does not apply to this case. That is, that is very clear under that 2008 amendment to the Tort Claims Act. It applies in two circumstances, and Ray affirmed this quite clearly. It applies if and only if the injury to the claimant is a result of the negligent failure by law enforcement to protect a claimant, or by the negligent failure of the state, uh, by the state to perform a health or safety inspection. Those are both, notably, those are both omissions. This case does not involve an omission. It involves affirmative acts taken by ACLS against Cedar Brook. What's your response to the other side that a negligence action can't and won't lie when there is intentional action involved and in that this uh, investigation uh, that was launched uh, by the agency was intentional and therefore negligence has no place? So. The Court of Appeals examined that issue in depth in Crump v. Diener, which involved um, a, an inspector for Diener who falsified certifications for septic permits. And that court relied heavily on this court's decision in Pleasant v. Johnson. 
Notwithstanding that those were intentionally falsified uh, uh, certifications, the court in Crump still found that it was negligence. The question, and this is uh, in, in reliance on Pleasant v. Johnson, the question is not whether the actions were intentional, but whether the injury was intentional. And the concept of negligence is eliminated only when the injury is intentional. Here, the plaintiffs have not alleged that there was an intentional injury, and in fact, counsel for ACLS has expressly disclaimed it. They said the regulators were just doing their job. In fact, if you look on page 447 of the record, uh, this is from the Industrial Commission argument <coughs> transcript. He says, and of course, we're not saying that the Department of Health and Human Services was intending to injure Cedarbrook, not at all, but rather that the employees were intending to do their jobs. That's exactly right, and they did their jobs negligently. Let me go back for a second to the conversation that you had with Justice Irvin. Uh, you're not saying that the tort that's being alleged here uh, would open uh, the scope to quasi-judicial actions like the Industrial Commission or the Utilities Commission. Uh, the way I understand your pleading is that it is focused on an agency that's exercising regulatory authority not quasi-judicial action. I, I think that's right, Your Honor. I, I don't think that um, there's a basis to apply uh, the Tort Claims Act to quasi-judicial actions, and I also believe that that remedy is provided for through the appellate process um, that the legislature has established for those decisions. Um, so it, it seems to me, factually, uh, as you've indicated, that all of the allegations that led to uh, the order that uh, prevented any additional admissions, all those were withdrawn. Uh, are there allegations in your complaint uh, regarding gross negligence or is this purely just negligence? There are no allegations regarding gross negligence. We have only alleged negligence. And there have been numerous cases that recognize claims for negligence in the context of regulatory actions. Again, Watts um, and multiple claimants are both uh, uh, from this court's precedent. Gammons is an earlier case which involved negligent investigation of child abuse claims. And then there are numerous claims from the Court of Appeals, or cases from the Court of Appeals. Um, a, a line of cases that dealt with the, issue, the inspection of properties and issuance of septic permits. Um, Husketh v. Department of Corrections involved the negligent application of sentencing guidelines. It can apply, the Tort Claims Act can and has applied to innumerable, innumerable contexts of negligent regulatory type actions that private persons do not have the authority to take. Uh, Counselor, you mentioned uh, multiple claimants, and I think you mentioned that in response to uh, Justice Hudson's question. However, my reading of, of, the, uh, of the opinion is somewhat troubling in the context that you're citing it because um, uh, Justice Timmons Goodson, writing for the court, says, recognize that there was a special relationship exception that applies in that case because between the state and inmates, this is the inmates fire case, um, uh, because inmates have an inability to care for themselves. And I, I don't believe the case here is brought by the, uh, by the, uh, the residents of this home. Instead, it, it is uh, based on your client. So how do you, um, how, how do you reconcile that? So the reason that was the uh, discussion in multiple claimants is because that was still within the framework of the public duty doctrine. And so there's not a direct action by the state in that case 
against the inmates. There's an indirect effect, uh, causality there, and the court had to find that special relationship in order to hold that the, the inmates still had a cause of action under the Tort Claims Act. Here, conversely, this is a direct relationship between ACLS and Cedarbrook. ACLS was taking direct action against Cedarbrook, and in, the, in its black letter law that when you exercise a positive course of conduct against someone, you owe that person a duty of care. So it's a much more direct relationship. We don't have to get into that indirect, tenuous connection of whether there's a special relationship at all. Thank you. Um, I'd like to ask about the, um, your view on the intersection between tort law and administrative law. And you, you talked about how um, the appeal, an appeal through the administrative process was not adequate because it doesn't provide for the um, full compensation of all the damages suffered. But if the legislature had intended in these circumstances to provide that kind of relief, I, I'm, I guess I'm troubled with how we factor in um, General Statute Section 6-19.1, which is the provision that says that where an agency has acted without substantial justification in pressing its claims, you're entitled to your attorney's fees. And it would seem that the negligent enforcement action that you're suggesting um, lies here, or that occurred in this case, is precisely where an agency has acted without substantial justification. And the General Assembly has said, well, in those circumstances, if a regulated entity has to defend itself in the administrative process, they can recover their attorney's fees, but not other consequential damages. And, and I would relate this, Your Honor, to a, an exhaustion of remedy type of question, where if there's not an adequate remedy provided for in the APA, a claimant can look elsewhere. Here, the General Assembly has also provided for the Tort Claims Act, which specifically applies to agencies, state agencies acting within the scope of their employment and authority. There is not an adequate remedy under, uh, within OAH and under the APA uh, to recover anything beyond attorney's fees. Here, this caused over a million dollars in damages to Cedarbrook and Mr. Leonard. They cannot recover that. There is not an adequate remedy within OAH. Due process requires that uh, a, a claimant have a meaningful hearing at a, in a meaningful time and in a meaningful place. Now, we could look at this under a due process kind of uh, analysis, but the General Assembly has already provided an avenue for relief. And there is no carve-out that says, well, since you can, you can look under the APA, you can't also look to the Tort Claims Act. That language doesn't exist in the Tort Claims Act, and that's where you would expect to find it if the General Assembly intended to carve that off. The effect of precluding a claim under the Tort Claims Act would be to give rise to a due process quorum claim. And there's the, that, that is the, the wrong approach where the General Assembly has already provided an avenue for relief. So you're, so you're arguing then that the State Tort Claims Act is like a, a stopgap um, to fill in if the Administrative Procedure Act remedies don't fully financially compensate a regulated entity? Certainly not as a general matter because the State Tort Claims Act only applies to claims of negligence. And that is a question of fact and the Industrial Commission has already determined that under our complaint we have alleged a claim for negligence. So it doesn't mean that it applies to every time the agency gets it wrong. And given the summary nature of the licensure actions that were taken, uh, this is an unusual circumstance and that the damages 
were significant and they were severe and they were incurred before Cedarbrook ever had a remedy. So help me understand where that line gets drawn then between if it's not every time the agency gets it wrong, um, but sometimes um, there can be a tort. How, um, how, where do we draw that line? Well, I think the line is negligence. I think in most cases, this is not like, for instance, a permitting case, where if the agency denies a permit and they've got it wrong, you still have a claim and you can challenge that denial and go through OEH into Superior Court and onto the Court of Appeals and here. Um, and if at the end of the day, the permit is still denied and the agency's decision is affirmed, then you have an awfully tough time bringing a, bringing a tort claim in that circumstance. And, and, and that was actually something I was going to ask you, uh, and, and I want to ask you first about your permit example. Again, let's say somebody applies for a permit, and if they got the permit, they would then be able to operate a business, earn income, and make a profit. They're uh, denied the permit, they go through the administrative proceeding, they appeal at the end of the appellate process, the holding is that the permit was wrongfully withheld. Do you, in that set of circumstances, as, uh, if the only thing you've got is the remedy under the, under the administrative process, there's no ability to go back and say, for example, uh, if I'd gotten the permit a year earlier than I actually did, I would have been able to operate my business during that period of time and been able to make this amount of money. Is uh, assuming that there was a negligent denial of the permit, is that a uh, claim that can be brought under the Tort Claims Act? Well, I, I think again that that may look more like the kinds of quasi-judicial decisions that um, this court hasn't said fall within the scope of the Tort Claims Act. Um, but I do think the agencies, as a general matter, under the Tort Claims Act, owe a duty. Secondly, let's say hypothetically that instead of settling, you had proceeded to trial before the uh, Office of Administrative Hearings and lost. Would that decision have race judicata effect in terms of your ability to bring a tort claim action like the one that you brought here? Almost certainly, Your Honor. It would be difficult to allege negligence if we've lost in OAH. What, if that's the case, then does your position in essence discourage the agency from entering into a settlement with a uh, uh, regulated entity? I don't think so, Your Honor. This was an unusual circumstance. The allegations were extreme. I don't think the state wanted to be in front of OAH defending their decisions such as trying to um, uh, prevent the sexual activity of Cedarbrook's residents, uh, which w these were the kinds of decisions that they were imposing on us. Because according to OA uh, ACLS, those residents could make informed decisions but weren't making good decisions. This was an extreme and unusual case. And I don't think that, that allowing a Tort Claims Act to proceed here uh, discourages settlement in the future. I think it, it encourages ACLS to proceed more carefully in the future, which is what, which is the policy that the General Assembly has established. The, the General Assembly has said state agencies acting within the scope of their employment should should uh, be should proceed with reasonable care. Uh, that is the relief that they have provided, uh, and, and that is the uh, claim that Cedarbrook has has brought here. It is, it is the policy of this state that agencies exercising regulatory authority uh, are held to a standard of reasonable care because when they do so negligently, 
it can cause real harm as it did to Cedarbrook. And the avenue for relief is the Tort Claims Act. I'm just about out of time. I'm happy to answer any other questions you may have. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start by addressing the question of the summary suspension, which Cedarbrook's Council mentioned multiple times. Um, that is a remedy specifically provided in 131D 2.7. The title of it is Summary Suspension of License. And the General Assembly has given the authority to the department to summarily suspend a license whenever it finds substantial evidence of abuse, neglect, exploitation, or any condition which presents an imminent danger to the health and safety of any resident of the home. And I think that represents a common sense approach by the General Assembly to dealing with a situation where the department comes in and it's concerned about the safety of the people living in a facility, whether that's you know, here, it's an adult care home, vulnerable residents live in nursing homes, congregate care situations for foster children, and the General Assembly's priority in these situations is to ensure that people are protected. Well, and so that's why it gave that. the- Ensure people are protected. What happens if the whole process that's engaged in uh, fails to discover the truth? In other words, you talked about uh, in answer to my question initially, uh, the violations. Well, we don't know if there are any violations unless the evidence gathering process was properly done. And the allegation here is that the evidence gathering process was flawed right from the beginning and that the agency failed to even uh, engage in the explanations that were offered by Cedarbrook. If that in fact is true, um, how can there be a proper suspension or a proper uh, action if the evidence of any violation was improperly gathered? And our position, Your Honor, is that in that situation, accepting the claim that none of this was merited or the investigation was entirely improper, that that's what the administrative remedy is for, including, as opposing counsel mentioned, the opportunity for a preliminary injunction to go quickly in front of the Office of Administrative Hearings and be able to show that whatever action was taken was unwarranted. And our position is that if you read the statutes governing the regulations of adult care homes and the remedies that they specifically provide, like for a summary suspension filing a contested case, that the General Assembly's priority is clearly manifested that first, in the case of a suspension, let's not admit any new residents until we make sure that the existing residents in this facility are safe. If, there's, if that turns out to be unwarranted, the investigation was improper, file a contested case, challenge it, do an, a preliminary injunction using the procedure, procedures in the APA if needed. But the statute does not say, and the General Assembly has not authorized, anything like the kind of remedy that the plaintiffs are seeking here. If the General Assembly has intended that kind of relief, it could have simply said, 
in the event that the suspension of admissions was improper, the facility shall have, you know, recompense, that it shall be able to bring a claim or it shall be able to recover lost revenue as a result of the people who weren't admitted. And the General Assembly simply didn't say that. And our position is, is that it's a constitutional crime. taking. I'm not quite sure how to answer that question, Your Honor. Um, we haven't briefed or analyzed it here. I don't think it would rise to this level. I think that this case, um, when you read the allegations, involves straightforward regulatory action according to the statutes that the General Assembly passed. And even assuming that plaintiff's allegations are true and that there were problems with the process here, the kinds of problems that they're talking about aren't things that would rise to the level of a regulatory taking. So for example, they claim that it was improper for the department to interview people with mental illness and get their reports about any conditions that they were experiencing in Cedarbrook because they weren't reliable narrators. To the extent that that's a valid theory, I don't think it relies to the level of a constitutional violation. It seems much more like the kind of standard administrative law question that the Office of Administrative Hearings should be dealing with and looking at what's the proper process under the rules and regulations to conduct this investigation what information can the department rely on, and so on. So that's the central problem with this claim, is that it is attempting to turn a regulatory inspection into a tort claim, resulting in a new action in a new forum on the exact same issues. And we submit that that's improper and that the case should be dismissed. And it's Thank you, counsel. Thank you, both counsel. Mr. Clark. Yes, oh yes, oh yes. The Supreme Court of North Carolina will be in recess until 11 a.m. God save the state and this honorable court.